This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. For more book recommendations, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page, and on Twitter at Burn555555. If you enjoy these podcast episodes, you should check out the Literary Salon tab on my website and sign up for our newsletter. We are hosting some fabulous online events in 2021, and we also host a wonderful online book club for anyone looking to discuss books with other book lovers. In fact, our next discussion is one of Lauren Willig's recommended books. Today, I am interviewing Lauren Willig about Band of Sisters. Lauren is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of The Summer Country, the Rita Award-winning Pink Carnation series, and three novels co-written with Beatrice Williams and Karen White. An alumna of Yale University, she has a graduate degree in history from Harvard and a JD from Harvard Law School. She lives in New York City with her husband, two young children, and lots and lots of coffee. Band of Sisters is on my recent She Reads Most Anticipated Historical Fiction Books of 2021 list and is one of my April Buzz Read selections. It's a fantastic read. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Lauren. How are you today? Good. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to talk with you about Band of Sisters. It's such an interesting read, and I just had actually put it on one of my 2021 most anticipated historical fiction reads for She Reads. So it's just such a great book. Well, thank you so much. I am so glad that you enjoyed it. I fell in love with the story, the true story of these Smith College alumni who went off to war, and I really hope everyone else will too. I know they will. And so why don't you just tell us a little bit more about the Band of Sisters, just kind of the general synopsis of the book. Well, Band of Sisters is based on the true story of the Smith College Relief Unit, a group of 18 Smith College grads who went off to France at the height of World War I to bring humanitarian aid to French villagers right behind the front lines, whose lives and livelihoods had been crushed by the German army. It's a wonderful story of forgotten American heroines, and I was lucky enough to be able to draw on thousands of pages of their letters and journals and so forth, where they basically gave a minute-by-minute rundown of all the crazy, terrifying, fascinating things that were happening to them over there right behind the front lines. Well, how in the world did you stumble across this story to be able to even know it existed, and then how did you decide to tell it? In addition to writing my own books, I also co-write with Beatrice Williams and Karen White. And we were working on a book set in three very quiet periods of French history, World War I, World War II, and the 1960s. And so for the World War I portion, really needed to know about how Christmas would have been celebrated in occupied France in World War One, And so we're desperately searching for sources. And up popped this memoir by a Smith alum, about throwing Christmas parties for French villagers right behind the front lines in the in Christmas of 1917. And I thought, that's crazy. I mean, this has to be fiction. What on earth are a bunch of Smithies doing right behind the, the front lines dressing up as Father Christmas? This can't be real. And of course, I dropped everything and read the whole memoir. And then I started digging to see what else I can find. I discovered that, in fact, this was real. These women were there. Everything that was said in the memoir happened and so much more. And so I was fascinated at first by the incongruity of it, the idea that these 
American college women were there right behind the trenches doing social service work. And I was also a little annoyed with myself for finding it incongruous that we have such a very set idea of World War I and what was going on there, and that we've basically written women out of the story to the point when I encountered a real group of women who were actually there doing these things they actually did, my immediate reaction was, but this couldn't have happened. And so I felt like I really, really needed to write this story to set the record right and write these incredible women back into the narrative. It is so funny how often I hear that these days when I'm speaking with all of these various historical fiction writers, how many fabulous stories there are about women that have effectively been written out of history. And so I'm just so glad that each and every one of you is finding these stories and getting them told so that these women will not be forgotten. Me too. And one thing that really annoys me is when we treat these stories as outliers, as sort of a sop. We'll throw you a women's story for Women's History Month. But the thing is, and what I find so fascinating, is that these women weren't outliers. That the Smith College Relief Unit, in fact, although I think they are incredible and unique, they were not the only female-led relief unit in the Somme. There were others. And in fact, they inspired copycat groups. They inspired a Wellesley Relief Unit and a Vassar Relief Unit. So for every supposedly exceptional story, of women doing things we think women don't normally do, you'll find tons of other exceptional stories to the point where you realize that this wasn't the exception at all, that women's activities were so much broader than we thought they were. We've inherited this odd idea that women didn't do much before the present day, when in fact they did. Sorry, that's a pet hobby horse of mine. I mean, it's becoming a pet hobby horse of mine too, because I just had no idea that there were so many of these stories that have just been forgotten. So I'm very glad they're now all being told. And the other thing I think that is interesting about your book is that so often there's so much written about World War II, but there's not nearly as much written about World War I today, or at least not that I'm coming across. And so it's fascinating to me to read a World War I story, but also to realize how many people from the U.S. were heading to the war before the U.S. ever entered the war. Right, because we, I mean, the U.S. didn't enter the war until 1917, but the second that war was declared in August of 1914, there were Americans rushing to join up. Actually, very funny story. There were a group of American guys in Paris, and when war was declared, they rushed off to the American ambassador to say, we want to join up to fight for the French. And the ambassador had to be like, well, um, actually, you're not really supposed to fight for a foreign power. That's generally considered treason, even if we like this foreign power. And But they came up with a workaround. They decided it didn't quite count as fighting for a foreign power if these guys wanted to enlist with the French Foreign Legion. And so that was kind of allowed, even though it was a gray zone. But what a lot of other American guys did was they found other ways to join up because there was this very romantic attachment to France, especially in regard to France's old relationship with the U.S., that little bit of help they gave us in our Revolutionary War. So many upper, upper middle class American men felt this deep attachment to France and this desire to help France in her hour of need. And so you had whole graduating classes from Yale and Columbia rushing off to France to join the American Field Service and to drive ambulances. One of my favorite anecdotes was a whole class from Andover, the boarding school, that rushed off there saying, we want to drive ambulances too. So it got to the point where, in fact, there were too many university and boarding school grads for the number of ambulances they had. They had to ask some of these guys if they would do other things like drive supply trucks. And another one of my favorite stories is the first Yale unit, about a group of Yale men who decided that, in fact, the next frontier of warfare was going to be flight, because this had not been a factor in previous wars. And one of these men, he got his daddy to buy them a plane and hire an instructor to teach them how to fly. 
They were known colloquially as the Millionaires Unit, and they went off to France to fly for France. And the life expectancy of the members of the Yale unit was very low, but it was one of these romantic exploits that American boys did. So when I discovered the Smith unit, they really fit into this context because they too wanted to be in on the adventure and had this attachment to the idea of France. So their brothers and cousins and boyfriends were rushing off to France. Why shouldn't they be allowed to do something too? I think that is fascinating because it is truly something that I have never heard about at all. It makes sense. I do think of France as a close ally and they did help us so much, but still the fact that there are just hundreds of people heading over there to help long before we entered the war is really interesting. Well, and the Germans got very miffed about this because we were supposedly neutral. But meanwhile, it wasn't like there were that many people rushing over to join the German army. And there were tons of Americans rushing over to join the French. So this caused actually kind of a sticky political situation for America until we finally entered the war for real, which is roughly where the Smithies come in because they they went over in the autumn of August, mid-August of 1917, uh, roughly around the same time that America entered the war. So there were American troops arriving as the Smithies set up shop at their headquarters in this little French village called Greycourt. And their role was to help the French towns that had been decimated by the Germans, correct? Yes, they were actually there not as part of the war effort, but as part of a humanitarian mission, because their founder, this eccentric alum, Harriet Boyd Hawes, who was a groundbreaking archaeologist, but also a convinced humanitarian, felt very strongly that their role should not be to do sort of adjunct work for the army, but to rebuild the lives of French villagers. Because what happened is, I mean, we all know about how Germany occupied France during World War II. But as you were saying, one thing that we almost never hear about is that France was also occupied by the Germans in World War I. They marched in in 1914 thinking they were just going to sweep through and conquer. But then the French fought back and so did the British. And they got stuck, the Germans, sort of about midway through where they expected to be. And the trenches were dug and they dug in and occupied a whole swath of France behind their lines. And they did not occupy gently. They systematically looted the area. They sent able-bodied men and women off to work camps in Germany. I mean, there are heartbreaking stories, especially towards the end of their time there, of teenage girls being rounded up and being loaded onto train cars and taken off to Germany. Their families didn't know where they'd been taken or whether they would ever see them again. And so all of this is going on. And then in spring of 1917, the Germans get pushed back, not far, but a little bit. But before they go, they systematically destroy everything in their past. They herd the remaining villagers, the very old, the very young, the infirm. They herd them all into one village and say, wait here. And then they go and they poison all the wells. They destroy all the dwellings. They break all the plows. They do everything but sow the fields with salt. And they'd probably have done that if they'd had the time or the salt to do it. And then they they go back to the villagers and say, you can go home now. Enjoy. And they send them back to their ruined, completely uninhabitable homes homes, thinking that they're going to starve and sicken and die and be a burden on the French war effort. And so this amazing Smith alumna heard about this and said, no, 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 (laughs) you have not reckoned with American college women. And she went back and gave a speech at the Smith Club saying there is this humanitarian disaster happening at France and the people who who are needed to fix this are clearly Smithies. So let's go do this, guys. And she got together this group. They raised money from the alumni. They put together supplies and their mission 
was basic rebuilding of people's lives from the ground up. There were two doctors in the group. One was a Smithy, one was not a Smithy, but also a woman. She was the only non-Smithy member of the group in real life, but that's a side point. Anyway, so there were two female doctors. There were a bunch of women who knew how to drive so they could drive back and forth between these villages from their headquarters. A lot of people with background in either social service work or kindergarten teaching. And they had one agriculturalist who had some experience with both livestock and crops. But unfortunately, she got stranded in D.C. and wasn't able to join them till later, which caused the Smithies great troubles because their, their mission was to go and provide basic medical care, rebuild homes, provide beds for kids who were sleeping on wooden planks in the mud, make sure the babies buy cows so there would be milk for the babies, buy chickens so people would have eggs, and to start to rebuild the agriculture and industry of the region bit by bit, to get these people on their feet again, not to hand out charity, but to rebuild their lives so they could get back to where they were. And so they went off to their little headquarters on the grounds of a ruined chateau and set out to try to really rebuild people's lives from the ground up. And there was actually a debate within the group about whether they should, in fact, be doing more for the actual war effort. And their founder was incredibly firm about the fact that they were a humanitarian mission and their job was to help French villagers. Well, and helping the French villagers would actually help the war effort as a kind of a secondary part of it. But because exactly as you described where the Germans were hoping to sort of undermine the villagers and then that would harm the war effort, if that wasn't even an issue, then everybody else fighting could just be focusing on what they were fighting for. Exactly. It's also, I mean, from a very practical level, this area had been one of the breadbaskets of France. And so part of what they were trying to do was replant the fields so that you could start growing things there again. Because, of course, food in a time of war was incredibly short supply. All the women wrote home about the rationing and particularly about the gruesome war bread, which was a staple part of their diet and apparently incredibly disgusting. Although I suspect from what I have read of it that now, we would totally think it was artisanal and label it as extra special artisanal oat bread. But at the time, of course, compared to the usual wheat bread, they were like, God, this stuff is disgusting. Why are there all these grains in it? These women weren't very far from the front either, because like when I look at your beautiful cover, there's an airplane flying over and you can tell that they're nearby. That must have been frightening to be kind of dumped into this area. You're helping, you're doing everything you can. But on the other hand, you can probably hear the fighting and see airplanes and everything. Well, I think it really first hit them when they embarked from New York. And one of the first things that happen when they get on the ship is that they're given metal dog tags with their name on them in case their bodies need to be identified if the ship is torpedoed. And so that's, I think, where it really hits a whole bunch of them for the first time. They wind up spending a month in Paris after they get there because they have to figure out what on earth happened to their trucks. They need passes to get to the wars and all sorts of passes. And the, the girls who drive have to pass their driving tests, which is its own hilarious story. And so anyway, while they're in Paris, they experience their first air raid. And they also, for some reason, their director decides it would be a good idea for them to tour the American Ambulance Hospital at Neuilly, where there is innovative reconstructive surgery going on on men whose faces have been destroyed by shelling. I mean, I've seen these pictures. They are absolutely horrific. They look like something out of a Frankenstein movie, except that it's not stage makeup. This is men who have had whole parts of their face blown off and are being rebuilt from scratch as if you're modeling a face out of silly putty. And of course, it's incredible they could do this, but it's really deeply 
horrifying. And the women were shown incredibly vivid photographs of these reconstructive surgeries, as well as plaster casts of the surgeries. And of course, there they are in the midst of all these wounded men. That's another thing they comment on that they see so many women in black. They've never seen that many women in mourning before in their life. And none of the men they see have all of their limbs because there are all of these wounded men missing arms or legs or hands or other bits of themselves everywhere. And so it's funny because they are in comparative safety when they're in Paris for that first month. But that's when the realities of the war really begin to hit them. The funny thing is once they get to their headquarters, in some ways, it's a little bit less jarring for them because they've already had that experience of, oh my God, we're People are getting wounded. We're in a country at war. And so even though there are all of these aerial battles right over their headquarters in this little village of Greycourt, that has less of an impact on them than that first air raid they experience in their hotel in Paris while they're waiting to go to the front. Isn't that funny? That is so funny. It's almost like trial by fire. Because I think if you had started out kind of the flip side of it and been close to the war and had all these things flying over you and hearing the war, you'd be so freaked out. And then you would see the wounded. I mean, it's all horrific, but it might be almost like a slow integration into it. But instead, you start out with the worst part of it. That is pretty funny. Well, I also think it's because they're actually weird sort of way they're more focused on the war while they're in Paris, because while they're waiting to get their trucks and actually go to their headquarters, they're farmed out to different organizations. So some of them are actually there making splints and other materials for the wounded, and others are doing canteen work for the Salvation Army, where they're dishing out food for departing troops, and they see these guys who are terrified and crying as they're about to leave for the front or getting really drunk and singing maudlin French songs. And it's really heartbreaking, and the war seems really near them then. But when they go to Grey Court, their job is to rebuild the lives of villagers. So it's a forward-looking, positive thing. And although, I mean, the ravages of the war shock them to their core, their doctor writes home that in years of working in the slums of Philadelphia, she has never seen anything like she saw in these French villages. It's shocking. Another writes home, and this phrase really stuck with me, about one of their villages, Canizy, that there are 50 children there and not one of them well. But it is the after effect of war and not the war itself. And their job is to fix things and make these people's lives better. And so even though the war is going on right near them, they can feel the ground trembling when there are artillery barrages. They can see the aerial battles overhead and look up and wonder which of their aviator friends is risking his life that day. But they're not themselves involved in that part of the war until later on when the Germans push through the lines and the Smithies really find themselves on the front lines of the conflict. But until then, the war is this sort of weird rumble in the back that they're aware of, but they are so focused on their social service work and helping people. It's also hard to fathom. It's just sort of one of those things I just can't quite imagine it. Well, the funny thing was, so I was about halfway through this book when New York went into lockdown last spring. And it was a very poignant experience writing about sort of the last stages of the Smithies' time in France and what happened when the Germans invaded and all that while I was locked here in my apartment in New York with the sirens screaming past my window all the time while we were at the height of the New York surge. And writing about the Smithies knowing that they had also been in one of these horrible situations and they they came through it and came out on the other side gave me such hope. And I really, I know there are so many ways in which the situations are not parallel, but 
I think there are some similarities in that there they are, they're having to carry on and do what they need to do while the war is going on in the background around them. And they know that any moment it could hit them. They start sort of midway through their time, they're carrying gas masks around with them, although they quickly say, it's just a precaution, we'll never need to use these but they do it anyway. And they know the same way that all of us who were here with the pandemic raging around us, we had to, after the first couple of days of shock, you go back, you carry on, you do what you need to do. You develop ways to work around it. But at the back of your head, you know that the disease is raging and it could hit you in your household at any moment. I really like that analogy, Lauren. That is a great way to look at it. And so interesting to think about that you were kind of finishing up the book right as the, the lockdown began. Well, you know me in covers, and I absolutely love your cover, and we talked a bit about it a minute ago, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about it because when I finished the book and I went back and looked, I felt like there were so many other little details that meant more to me when I was done than when I began. Well, I am so very grateful to the art team at William Morrow for working so hard to make this cover as accurate as it is. Everything you see on the book is real. The gates are the iconic gray court gates. Anyone who has ever been to Northampton or been to Smith knows that sort of the symbol of Smith College are the gray court gates. Those gates were actually a replica of the gates at the Smithies ruined chateau in France. And they were installed in 1924 as a homage to the bravery of the Smith unit. The real gates, you can see the real gates with the ruined chateau in the background on the cover of Band of Sisters and also one of the Smithies trucks. They had three trucks they used to drive around from village to village. And one of their great innovations was they had a traveling store in one of the trucks and people would come and line up to buy from the traveling store because the idea was they didn't want people to feel like they were being beggared. They didn't want to give charity. They wanted people to still feel proud and independent. So what they did was they would buy up goods in Paris and other places and then sell them at a sharp discount to the villagers who would feel great because they felt like they were putting one over on the stupid Americans who didn't understand how their money worked. And then they'd write these reports home like, this is how much we lost on the store this week. But it was great because they, they, their goal was to lose money on the store. But anyway, so the picture is the truck with French villagers lined up around it. And so, and the women you see on the cover are wearing the actual uniform of the Smith College Relief Unit, which is another one of those things that cracked me up because when the unit was founded and they had just a couple of months to get up off the ground and get all these passes and try to get a relief organization to take them on and sponsor them so they could go to France and they're soliciting donations and acquiring supplies and interviewing potential members. The founder wrote that the one thing that almost broke them was designing the uniform. Okay, that's hilarious. <laughs> I know. It's like, of course, you're having to wrangle with French bureaucracy and try to persuade the Red Cross that they should really let you go to the front. By the way, the Red Cross would not take them initially. They didn't believe that they could do what they thought they could do. And they thought this was a terrible idea. But they got the American fund for the French wounded to take them. Anyway, there's all this stuff they're doing. But the real issue? What's the uniform design? Blood, sweat, and tears went into designing those uniforms. Those were the official uniforms of the Smith College Relief Unit. And the people at William Morrow used real uniforms that are in the costume collection at Smith College. There's a women's clothing collection there. There's an official name for that, but my brain is mush right now. But anyway, they have a women's, they have a clothing collection. And the art department at William Morrow used a real uniform to make sure they got the details right. They were gray with touches of French blue. 
I just love that. And that's one of my favorite things about covers like yours is that you see it initially and you think that's a fantastic cover and I love it. And then I read the book and I'm like, oh, and there's so much more involved in it than I knew before I started. I just think that's fabulous. Oh, I am so glad. Yeah. And there's also, sorry, I could ramble on about this forever, but also on the cover there is, as you point out, there's an airplane because they constantly, there were constant dog fights up above them. But one of the things I haven't discussed though, is that as you can imagine, the Smithies became very, very popular with all the men of the English speaking men of the Psalm who were so delighted that there was suddenly this bunch of American women there. So all of the Canadian English and American soldiers and aviators flocked to their headquarters at Great Court. I mean, the stuff, it's some of it is just hilarious because they would make up these insane excuses about why they were dropping by. And we're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a war zone. This is not just dropping by. They'd be like, oh, we were just passing. It's like passing on your way to where? And the Smithies would write lists of the excuses they used and kind of laugh over them. And the aviators would fly by. I I love this detail. They would fly overhead and drop long ribbons with a little pouch at the end. And in the pouch would be a message. And the smithies would go and take letter cards and spell out their answers on the lawn for the aviators to see up above. Okay, I love that. Some kind of levity and something that they can actually enjoy while you're in the middle of this horrible war experience. That is a very cool story. Thank you. Well, they joked that their their guest books were absolutely killing because everyone would come by and people would just sort of randomly stop by all the time. Let me tell you, they got a lot of work out of their visitors. If you stopped by for tea, you'd find yourself repairing a chicken coop. Exactly. Or loading a truck. Exactly. But they did have to tell their gentleman callers to please confine their visits to Sundays because really they have a lot of work to do and they did not have time to just entertain gentleman callers every day. Okay. That is so funny. Well, this is your 21st novel, which I think is amazing. That's very impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. So tell me though, as you look back on all of your novels, do you have a favorite? I would have to pick two very different ones from sort of the opposite ends of the spectrum of my writing. Some people may know I spent many, many years writing a madcap series about spies during the Napoleonic Wars. They were kind of a scarlet Pimpernel spoof inspired by the British comedy Blackadder and the romance novels of Julia Quinn and Georgette Hare. And I wrote them really there for fun. And I so enjoyed writing them. And the most madcap of this madcap series is a Christmas adventure called The Mischief of the Mistletoe, in which there are secret notes being smuggled by spies and Christmas puddings. Jane Austen pops up as a side character. And the hero is named Turnip, which I think tells you everything you need to know. And I just, I so adored this book and these characters. And every now and then, I love to go and revisit that world. On the other end of the spectrum, in terms of sort of more serious historical fiction, I'm very, very proud of my last standalone novel, The Summer Country, which is set in colonial Barbados in the 18-teens around a rising of enslaved people, and in the 1850s after emancipation in the midst of a dreadful cholera epidemic. Well, I was first introduced to your writing with the Pink Carnation series, and I absolutely love that series. It is so much fun. What we need right now in the midst of a a grueling year of pandemic are things that are just plain fun. So actually, as a kind of mental health break for myself, I decided I wanted to go back to the world of the Pink Carnation and read through 
all 12 Pink Carnation books because I have not read them since I wrote them, but I remember it being a really fun time and I so need something light and silly right now. And in the way of things, this I will reread my book somehow spiraled into a ginormous 12-month read-along, which as you can imagine, I am so excited and happy about. Every month we're reading a different book. This past month, February was The Secret History of the Pink Carnation. This coming month's book is going to be The Mask of the Black Tulip. And I am posting extras and outtakes and so on on my website. And at the end of each month, there is a great big giant book club Zoom meeting co-hosted by a good author friend of mine this past month, Sarah McLean co-hosted with me. And this next this coming month for March, my good friend Tasha Alexander is going to be discussing The Mask of the Black Tulip with me. So if anyone's interested, you can find more about that on my website. And there's going to be a registration link for the book club meeting with Tasha Alexander. I initially had thought this would be sort of like a small intimate meeting where we would all chat about the book. But I was completely flummoxed when when I posted the registration link for the first meeting for Secret History of the Pink Carnation. All 100 spots were filled within the first hour. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do? And Sarah, who's much tech savvier than I am, is like, we'll expand the Zoom room. So we wound up filling all 500 slots for the first meeting. And I am just overwhelmed by the joy of so many people rereading these books with me. Oh, and for anyone who didn't know about the read-along or couldn't get into the original read-along meeting, I'm live streaming them onto my Facebook author page at Facebook slash Lauren Willig. So you can come and watch it at your leisure and really just pop into the read-along with whenever you like with any of the books. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I love those books and I haven't read them in years. And that just seems like the perfect antidote to 2020 and 2021 to do something fun like that. And I have a newsletter that goes to my literary salon and I'm going to include that because I'm always looking for something fun to go at the bottom of the newsletter. And so this is perfect. I'm so glad we talked about it. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you come and reread with us. And this is a work in progress. This is totally something I blundered into by accident. So I'm really open to all suggestions about how the read-along should be done and what would make it more fun. Well, I can't wait to join. I will definitely be there for the next one. And now I know which book I need to get reading. (laughs) Well, Black Tulip is one of my absolute favorites in the series. So I really hope you will come read that with me. I absolutely will. Before we wrap up, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you've read recently that you really liked? So one of the things I've read recently that I really liked, well, a friend told me that she had read something that was Georgette Hare and Jane Austen, but with dragons. And I was like, really? Jane Austen with dragons? I wasn't sure I bought this concept. And oh my God, this book is Jane Austen or Georgette Hare, but with dragons. It's called Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton. And it's this wonderfully realized alternate world that is everyone's a dragon, but the tone is totally Austen. For example, it's a great problem for young lady dragons. If their scales turn pink, they will be ruined. Parsons fly around with their wings delicately tied with one red ribbon to show their office and so on. And it's very much of this Austenian world, but with dragons. So for anyone who likes really intricate world building and loves the tone of those Austen or Hare books, I highly recommend Joe Walton's Tooth and Claw. The other one that's really stuck with me recently is Matthew Haig's The Midnight Library about a woman who is feeling in total despair about her life and winds up in the Midnight Library 
living all the other lives she might have lived. Because we all have those moments where like, gosh, years ago, what if I had done X instead of Y? Would my life have been better? And this really, this tackles that head on. And she lives every single one of those lives and discovers that each of them have their own hiccups and that maybe the life you have isn't as bad as you think it is. I absolutely love that book. It really resonated with me. I always kind of get hung up on like one particular thing, like, oh, why did that happen? Or why did I do that? And so then makes me kind of go back to his book each time now and think, you know what, if something had gone differently, that might have meant everything else was different also. So it definitely is a great frame of reference. And actually, I run an online book club, and we've picked that for our March discussion. I just think it's a fabulous book. Well, Lauren, I am so glad that you came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and I really appreciate your taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me here. I always so enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Lauren's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.